so. Well, apparently she's done with Ikea, and now she's getting real wood furniture. Speaking of wood, wooden water wells. (laughs) (laughs) We had deep segues this week. (laughs) Oh, man, that one, quite quite deep. That one went, yeah. I thought it was natural. You know, I was trying to go for, like, a deep water well kind of pun (laughs) on to offer that by saying it was a deep segue. Oh, we were thinking the same thing. (laughs) Oh, thank God. (laughs) Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water. One podcast. I'm Lauren Dalcello, Managing Editor for Water Quality Products. I'm Katie Johns, Managing Editor for Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Senior Managing Editor for Water Waste Digest. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we start the episode with an interesting infrastructure discovery, touch on the new Navigable Waters Protection Rule, which will replace the Waters of the U.S. rule, and discuss the impacts of a new study investigating the effectiveness of water treatment filters for PFAS removal. Now, let's kick off the podcast with some fun news this week. An international team of archaeologists uncovered a 7,300-year-old Neolithic water well made of oak trees in the Czech Republic. According to Sci News, the archaeologists have deemed it the oldest wooden water well discovered in Europe and the oldest dendrochologically dated archaeological wood in the world. The wooden timbers were remarkably preserved under waterlogged conditions. This reminds me a lot of when I attended WaterCon in 2019 last year, and there was a water infrastructure history section, which included segments of wooden water pipes still used in some places on the east coast of the U.S. today. So with a new legislative session approaching and water industry groups gearing up to lobby legislators for infrastructure, I'm interested to hear Bob and Katie's thoughts on what they've heard are water infrastructure concerns in the U.S. currently and the upcoming legislative session could address these issues. Yeah, first off, the fact that you nailed that big word was very good. Um, I practiced it at my cubicle. (laughs) 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 Yeah, that one's particularly uh, interesting. But um, that's really cool. It's super, such an old thing. I I feel like there's a lot of that kind of stuff, too, when you think about other um, infrastructure you think about like the channels and stuff in what is that in like Rome and Greece they, they had like sewer channels and stuff there mm-hmm. and then also in um, Arizona they are very proud of their um, like network of canals and everything that the whole com created like ages and ages ago to live in that desert that desert area um, so the fact that like more of that stuff is being uncovered is really kind of cool to see and I can't believe it was preserved under those waterlogged conditions that it was still intact yeah well that was what was so interesting to me because like I said when I was at WaterCon last year there was an exhibit about water history in the U.S. and there are literally still places on the east coast of the U.S. where they do use wooden pipes because Mm -hmm. they are preserved by the water as long as there's water touching it they Mm -hmm. don't fall apart yeah well and uh, that reminds me also um one of the times that i went to the milwaukee water leaders summit Mm, they had a guy gave a like a story told a story about like wooden pipes in the northeast and everything Mm -hmm. and if you do a cross section of that pipe what it looks like is actually the chase bank logo um so like how that is shaped that's actually part of the roots of that bank it goes back years and years to the utility that was part like 
to a utility that had pipes and wooden pipes or something like that. There's like a whole background there that's really interesting and connects to the Chase Bank logo. Um, I don't remember it in full detail, but I'm sure you could Google it and find some more information <laughs> yeah, on it. Cool. But yeah. if you're that 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 was really interesting. It reminded me of that too. So I I wanted to talk a little bit with you guys too about um, upcom- the upcoming legislative session and how water infrastructure may play a role in that. This week, I've been seeing some news that uh, a supposed $1 trillion is being allocated for infrastructure funding in uh, the next session, but that's roads and bridges. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I know that when when Trump initially came into office, his his platform was a trillion-dollar infrastructure package. I believe with um, 200 billion of it would be from uh, the federal government and the rest would be privately done mm-hmm. in some way, shape or form. Um, I recall that being his platform as soon as he entered office, but we hadn't seen really much on that front. I'm, I go both ways when it comes to the legislative session for 2020 because we do have the upcoming general election going on, going on and the primary election about to happen or already right have now. happened um, right now. So. With all of that happening in, happening in Washington, trying to get a bill through is really difficult. Um, but I also can see that, like, if you were if you want to get like good in with your constituency, getting some type of infrastructure bill passed that allows you to fix the roads in your county or in your district or uh, update like your the water plant in a place that really needs it within your district or something like that that could be a real big help for you as a politician so I go both ways on it where I can see the value of it from the political side but I also feel that like there, there's too much going on in Washington for them to focus on anything like that like the impeachment is finally the impeachment process seems to be finally over but it hasn't changed any of like the infighting and stuff that's going on and I feel like that's just becoming the conversation and the actual work that needs to get done just isn't forefront of mind so I don't know if that's what you guys have seen or heard but that that's what I'm gathering from from talking to people and from what I've seen and just kind of more of an extension of the uh, state of the industry report that I put together last year too yeah I found the same thing where you know there's not a lot um you know, permitting and regulations going on too much at the federal level. It's a lot of states and municipalities doing it on their own and kind of mm-hmm. figuring out what their regulations and management should be. So it'll be interesting to see if that changes um, with the upcoming session mm-hmm. and election. Yeah. I expect that states and local stuff will continue to be, like, the driver for most of this year just because it's the uncertainty with Washington during an election season mm-hmm. and, like, what – well, there's there's stability in the sense of knowing that like they're kind of on hold, if that makes sense. So it's easier to lean into the your state and local ordinances. I mean, speaking of state and local groups being a driver, the new navigable <laughs> waters protection rule is kind of spot on with that. Yeah. So yeah. speaking of, we'd be remiss not to mention the U.S. Uh, EPA's release of the new navigable waters protection rule, which will redefine the waters of the U.S. Um, the new rule will no longer include um, ephemeral streams, wetlands not connected on the surface to larger water bodies and stormwater, according to CNN. The rule also places more responsibility on waterway regulations in the hands of states. While the rule is not expected to go into effect for a few months, several state attorney generals and environmental groups are expected to uh, contest the change. 
Um, we've discussed WOTUS on this podcast before, but this new rule marks a significant um, change. So I'm interested to hear what Lauren and Bob's thoughts are from their you know, perspectives of the water industry. Yeah, I to be honest, I haven't looked too deeply into it quite yet, so I'm not. I don't really feel comfortable talking too too much about it, um, mm-hmm. and and I haven't really seen much talk on like social media or like industry groups on this specific thing. Mm-hmm. I know that um, if anything, I would imagine that it would get kind of the same responses that other things when it comes to regulations are of like mm-hmm. um, being really divisive and like oh, well, it's really important that we have regulations so that we can maintain our environment. And then all their people saying, but yeah, sometimes those in, those regulations are too heavy-handed and they're impossible to like mm-hmm. reach mm-hmm. and are only serve as a means to fine us so that they can make money. And like, there's, I feel like it, it'd run into that same kind of thinking on both sides of the, of the coin. Yeah, and I, the only other thing I would add is that, and the CNN article states it, is that it would, this is seen as beneficial to us agriculture and that, you know, not farmers mm-hmm. don't necessarily have to wait for permits to come through from the government. It might be a little easier for them. So I'm interested to see how that plays out and where that goes going forward once it's kind of in effect. Yeah. So. Water rights in their own right are, is a really tricky subject. Um, and trying to, I, gosh, I can't imagine trying to write a law that would make water rights work. Consider, I mean, we're a one water podcast. We understand how it's all mm-hmm. connected. So it's just like, yeah, it may be a puddle in on this farmer's land, but it could seep into the groundwater aquifer, and then it's part of the drinking water mm-hmm. system. And like, you know, it it's really hard to determine like who has rights on what, and um, may, maybe putting it at the states could be beneficial in that regard that it can be handled more locally. Of like, well, we really need this water in our aquifer here, so unfortunately, at this time, the puddles on your property are part of the like aquifer or whatever you know yeah. maybe that's the way to handle it but i i'm not a, a lawyer nor am i <laughs> someone who truly understands like the intricacies of that kind of inner working and so i'd like to hear from our, our listeners if they have any opinions on this type of thing and whether they think it's good or bad for for their utility or for their community and that kind of thing i i'd be more interested to hear from our our readership mm-hmm. and listenership to hear what like what's it actually like for you rather than postulate more on from from where I'm standing. Yeah, I agree. So should we should we talk about the last last guy? The last guy. <laughs> should we talk about the last news item here? Um, yeah, we let, let's pivot to um, this article here on PFAS. So. Researchers from Duke University and North Carolina State University published a new report investigating the effectiveness of point of use and point of entry filters in residential drinking water to remove PFAS. The researchers tested 89 filters for PFAS removal and found reverse osmosis two-stage filters to be the most effective techniques for removal. The results regarding the regarding activated carbon and point of entry systems varied widely. So the um, this is really interesting to me, and um, particularly because GAC is often seen as the end-all, be-all for PFAS removal. Um, it's generally seen like that's just the way that you would move it, especially at the municipal level. So to see reverse osmosis um, be high on the list is really interesting. But then I also noticed that it is a two t- two-stage filter, um, and that's at a municipal level seems like it might be financially difficult to manage a lot of energy 
goes into pushing water through reverse osmosis membranes. And to do that, to make two passes through that to remove PFAS would be, would take a lot of energy. Um, and then my other question too is, what does that then do to the membranes themselves? How often do you have to maintain them? How often do you have to clean them, replace them, those specific filters, so that they do continue to manage that? So I mean, maybe maybe at the um, at a smaller level, when it comes to a residence or a home, maybe that two stage reverse osmosis is easier to manage than a GAC system. Um, you, I, I know Lauren, you had some thoughts on this too. Yeah, this study was so incredibly interesting to me for a lot of reasons. Well, first of all, I did write my March editorial letter about this because it's a really hot topic for the point of use, point of entry industry, a little controversial. Um, my first thought is Detlef Nappy, the study's lead author, who he's with North Carolina State University. He is extremely widely respected in the field of PFAS research. He's really on the forefront of Gen X research in Williamton, um, Williamton North Carolina. Um, so he's very respected. I did have a lot of questions about the uh, the study, like what specific kinds of filters they were using, what exactly they were certified for, because it certainly raises questions if they're testing filters that are not certified for PFAS removal. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, those filters aren't going to be effective in those situations. Yeah. Um, first and foremost, that's that's a consumer awareness. Um, issue and consumers need to be working in partnership with water treatment dealers to make sure that they're um, installing filters that are appropriate for their contaminant concerns. But the other the other issue that I encountered with reactions around this study was how uh, major major stream uh, news media sites were taking this study and twisting it into some in really insane clickbait headlines that. Mm-hmm. Uh, convince the consumer to be distrustful of water treatment products and and water treatment solutions. You know, I saw mm-hmm. one headline out there that was something along the lines of, your water filter doesn't do its job. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't put two and two and see how this study possibly, possibly says that. The other element to the study that was really, really interesting to me was the affordability aspect. So the researchers really stressed that they found reverse osmosis through their study to be the most effective residential treatment method for PFAS removal, but also one of the most expensive. And um, as not all of our listeners may know, PFAS is a little more commonly a concern in lower income communities because it occurs near manufacturing plants Mm -hmm. commonly. Um, so that reverse osmosis was what they found to be one of the most effective solutions was pretty interesting to me from an accessibility perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and when that, that, that aligns pretty well with what my thoughts were when I saw this too as it relates to the municipal level of like the affordability aspect of reverse osmosis on that scale would mm-hmm. be, like that'd be so much. Like reverse osmosis is already pretty expensive for the energy expenditure to do it twice is really expensive. And then I know from a residential perspective, like it's you still have to have the pressure you need to push it through this darn membrane. Mm-hmm. Um, so you still need the energy to do that. It's just on a lower scale, so it's maybe more affordable for, at an individual level, but that's it's still not going to be super affordable for every community that's out there. I wanted to tie this back in a little bit to to our earlier discussion of the navigable navigable waters protection rule, Mm -hmm. um, because that's another instance where I think it's so, so, so important to consider 
all the sides of the multifaceted problem that all of us in the water industry are trying our darndest to solve. And in that particular instance, I've seen plenty of clickbait headlines out there from major news outlets saying, um, you know, the government is destroying our water protection rights or giving mm-hmm. you more or the, or vice versa, either ends of the spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. Extremes that aren't showing you a complete full picture. So I think from our end as uh, media covering the industry or as members of the water industry, it is really, really, really important to just have an open, open conversation and mm-hmm. not fall into those tactics. Yeah, it's really rare that issues like these are so black and white. A lot of exactly. times it's just it's a series of grays that you have to navigate and just find the best gray that's available at the time. Um, it may not be the best thing for like forever. You may have to shift that mm-hmm. conversation or shift that policy later on down the road. Um, but yeah, like it's really tough to find like this is the way to do it. It's going to be like that forever. <laughs> it's just like we're continually finding more more contaminants. There's they're continually finding more issues to deal in in water. The further we can, the further testing goes, the further science goes, the more we can actually get deeper as it as it relates to like seeing water and seeing water at a very molecular level the more we're going to discover more and more things Mm -hmm. and it's like it's never going to truly end so the question then is where where do we break and say this is still totally acceptable and this is not you know and in terms of PFAS I think we're we're really still in the early days of Mm -hmm. the technological evolution of how to uh, efficiently, effectively, and economically manage these mm-hmm. concerns and create safe drinking water. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, time for some housekeeping, huh? Housekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> Were you supposed to be like in a hotel? Like. I know. I was like, was there supposed to be a knock first? Like, was it supposed to be housekeeping? <laughs> I just needed to. <laughs> I just needed to. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, time for some housekeeping. Um, so Water and Waste Digest is accepting nominations for young professionals. We will be featuring them in the May issue of Water and Waste Digest. That issue goes to AWWA Ace in June. If you know a rising star or you know someone within your organization who is 40 years old or younger that you think really exemplifies what it means to be a young professional, uh, please drop them a nomination on our website. Go to bit.ly slash WWD Young Pros Nomination and nominate today. Um, In other news, registration is now open for the SWS Webinar Fest that will take place from April 28th to 30th. Um, The lineup is being finalized, and you won't want to miss it, so visit um, www.swswebinarfest.com for more information and to register. And look out for your favorite Talking Underwater podcast hosts at upcoming shows. Bob and I will be at the AWWA WAF Young Pros Summit, uh, at the end of February, I will be at the Water Quality Association DC fly-in the first week of March and looking forward to reporting back what I learned there. And the first week of April, I'll be at the Water Quality Association convention looking forward to meeting listeners and readers alike. 
and I will be attending WET. Uh, that's going to happen prior to this episode getting to your inbox, so I uh, won't be able to meet with you there if I haven't already made plans with you, but I will report on that next episode. Uh, then I will be at the YP Summit, like Lawrence mentioned, and in March I'll be at WaterCon in Illinois for the Illinois AWWA convention. And then I will also be at the AMTA Membrane Technology 2020 conference in that same month. Um, and then in April, we also have an event called One Water Connect. If you are a listener who is a utility member um, and you are looking to you know, have a project or solve a problem at your plant or something like that, and you're looking to get in front of some manufacturers or solutions providers to see what's on offer, we really recommend that you go to our website, onewaterconnect.net. You can learn a little bit more about the event. It's really exclusive. It'll get you one-on-one time with those solutions providers. Um, But we will be making selections on who will be attending because it's going to be a small group. We'll make those selections at the beginning of March. So um, please do sign up if you have an opportunity to, uh, to do so. And if you feel like you qualify for that. Um, and I will be at IECA at the end of this month, and then in March I will be at the WEF Stormwater Symposium, and then in April I will be at the NCSPA Annual Meeting and also at the One Water Connect event with Bob. Finally, listeners, if you like what you hear today, don't forget to like, subscribe, share, leave us a review, comment on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, or pretty much anywhere you can find your podcast. And if you have comments or thoughts about what you heard here today, we love when listeners reach out to us. So drop us a line at talkingunderwater at sgcmail.com to share your thoughts. And if you want to engage with us on Twitter or social media, our Twitter handle is at TUW Podcast. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. (laughs) Thank you for listening.